that all right? Good morning, good morning, good morning. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Hey, welcome to City Light. My name's Glenn, serve as one of the pastors here. Really glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you or a device, I want you to open up to the first book in your Bible, the book of Genesis. If you're new with us, maybe this is a, a, just a, a weekend where you're visiting us, a warm welcome to you. We're glad you're here. Uh, we are working our way through this book of Genesis that tells really the story of how God created everything. It, unfortunately, it tells the story of how sin came into our world and has brought with it corruption and chaos and death and um, in Genesis chapter 12 what we see is God begins to weave together a story and it's a story that you and I are living in right now today on this Mother's Day the year of our Lord 2023 and uh, I want to preach a sermon this morning that I have entitled God I see you God I see you um, it wasn't long ago, it was last week that I was at High V, 156th and Maple, the Lord's anointed, and I'm in the parking lot, jumping in my vehicle, driving out, and as I'm driving down the lane, I, I see a face that I, I haven't seen for 10 years, something like that. And I take a, a second look, and I realize that my college roommate, one of them, uh, who I went to Northwest Missouri State with, is walking in the park parking lot of Hy-Vee. And so I, I stop my car, I, you know, I honk, I roll down the window, hey, hey, we start talking, and one thing led to the next, I uh, made sure I still had his number, said, hey, I'll call you, let's, let's grab some lunch, let's catch up, and I'm thinking, man, like, where's he been? You know, I wonder what life has has felt like for him. What's the story that God's written over the last 10 years? And we get together at, um, where'd we go? Chipotle and yet another place that's anointed. Amen, amen. <laughs> Except for their queso. And uh, no offense. So I tell you this story because we sit down at the table and I, I ask, hey, where have you been? He says, Omaha. For how long? Uh, 2013. You've lived in Omaha since the year we parted ways. Yeah. Okay, well, where do you live right now? 150th and Maple. Real, how long have you lived there? Like six years? Maybe seven? What about you? 156th up in Bennington. How long have you lived there? Uh, like five years. I, we had no idea that we were in proximity to one another for 10 years. And I do think this morning coming in, it, it can feel like that with God. The truth is, and, and what scripture testifies to, is that God is near to us. He's close to us. If you belong to him and you've bowed your knee to him and you've placed your faith in Jesus... He promises, I'll never leave or forsake you. And yet, I, I think many of us would come in here this morning and say, God does not feel close. 
He feels distant. I've not felt close to him. I don't remember the last time I sincerely prayed. I, I'm walking through some things in my life right now that, frankly, I didn't expect. And it's not in my instinct to reach out to God and to pray to God and to ask to God for help. And my story, maybe even for the last 10 years, you have had a story where it's not felt like God is close. And yet I want to tell you, we're going to read a story this morning that shows us he always has been. He always has been. All we have to do is turn and seek him, and he will be found. This is like nobody in this room, there's no discrimination here as far as anyone who qualifies for finding God, for seeing God, for knowing God. No matter how distant you felt from him, for how long it's been, even if you felt distant for one week, even if you had a terrible weekend and you felt more distant from God this last weekend than you have in a long time, he is near to be found. And the goal in our text is for us to see that we can say and we can declare and we can believe, God, I see you. God, I see you. I see you. The context here, I want to I tell you, um, there was a promise made in Genesis chapter 12 to a guy named Abraham, right? So, um, this is the beginning of God's story. He's writing to bring salvation to the world. And he chooses this guy from a pagan nation. He says, hey, I want you to, to call me your God. Out of you, I'm going to make a nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to give you a, uh, a promised offspring. He actually promises him, hey, Abraham, uh, you're going to be the father of so many nations that your children, your offspring are going to number the stars in the sky, uh, the sand on the seashore. And out of your family, and, and the way I bless your family, will come blessing to, to, the, to the world. And so we begin to see this story, and we've just been following the journey of Abraham. If you have your Bible, your device, Genesis chapter 21 is where we're going to be this morning. Genesis chapter 21. The biggest question mark that has been looming over all of these chapters, it's been subtle under the surface in some of these stories, it's been right in your face in other parts of the stories, as we follow the life and the journey of Abraham is... Where is his son? He has a wife named Sarah. And at this point in the story, Sarah's 90 years old. And 25 years before this, God made a promise that from Sarah would come offspring, a promised son. And so the big question mark's been, where is this son? And so we rejoice at the beginning of chapter 21, Isaac is born. He's finally born. The son of promise is finally here. And if you pick it up with me in chapter 21, verse 8, it says this, The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is a big celebration. And here's why this is a big celebration. Isaac was probably about three years old. And for a child back then to be weaned is a huge deal because a lot of children would not make it, would not survive to be three years of age. So there's this big feast, there's this huge party, the child of promise has arrived, God kept his promise, he protected his covenant that he made with Abraham, he guarded his own character, but then some drama ensues. Okay, it's this beautiful picture, and then something happens that's kind of our inciting incident. If you kind of understand storytelling, you know, you have your your first like calm setting, and then you have the inciting incident that then increases the tension of the story 
And that's going to happen in Genesis 21, verse 9. Read this with me. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, you're going to need a little background on that. Who is Hagar? Okay, so Sarah, Abraham's wife, she sees the son of Hagar laughing. Now, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 16, here's what Sarah said to Abram. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. This is Hagar. So, so back when we saw the, the mess of Sarah saying, um, hey, I can't have kids, and so let's help God fulfill his promise to us. Here's my slave woman, Hagar. Why don't you make her pregnant, and then we can call that son this promised son. And so Abraham listens to the voice of his wife, and Ishmael is born. At this point in the story, Ishmael is probably about 16 years old. And this laugh, according to the original language here, is a laugh of mocking. It's a laugh of scorn. It's a laugh of contempt. Verse 10, Sarah says, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, we'll just draw us into this story real quick. Um, Sarah doesn't even refer to Hagar or Ishmael by name. She says, cast out this slave woman. Cast out the son of this slave woman. There is great contempt here. There's also great fear. Sarah wants to remove this threat to her son's inheritance. She's protective, and listen, the threat is real. Again, let me help draw you into this story. Abraham has been a father to Ishmael for 13 years before Isaac ever comes on the scene. If you put yourself in Abraham's shoes, for all he knew, Ishmael was the son that God had promised, and they had likely formed a bond in fatherhood and and in sonship, and for a long time he likely didn't even think Isaac was coming. And this is why back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, Abraham pleads, Oh Lord, oh that Ishmael might live before you, is the language that he uses, meaning that he might receive your special blessing, that he might be the son of promise. And so verse 11, the next verse in our text, it makes total sense. Here's what it says. The thing was very (laughs) displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But... God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac, through Isaac, excuse me, shall your offspring be named. This is a really messy situation. It's dramatic. Abraham is greatly distressed by this. And what does God say? Don't be displeased. Don't be displeased. Do as she says. And then here's God's reassuring grace seen in the next verse, verse 13. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Church Ishmael, he would not become a people group who loved Jesus. Just the opposite. His birth was the beginning of much of the Middle East conflict that we see to this very day. 
So he's, he's not a part of God's covenant plan. He's not going to be a part of God's covenant people. But this right here is astounding to me because it teaches us something about God. He loves all people. He loves all nations. And he desires that none should perish. This picture of God right here, it gives us what theologians call common grace. Common grace. What that means is God provides for everyone, whether or not they have bowed their knee to him. Like when we finally got rain this last week, and there's probably rain coming today or tomorrow. Surprise, it rained on everyone's lawn, Christian and non-Christian. This is like the, the illustration that the scriptures give us, that the rain falls on on all the crops, everyone's crops. This is a picture of God's grace. It's a small glimpse of his goodness. And we see it with Ishmael. And this is why God's saying, Abraham, you can trust me. I will work it out. I have a plan. Can I just ask you a question this morning? Do you actually believe that God has a plan? Do you actually believe that God knows exactly what he's doing. Nothing in your life is a surprise to him. He has a plan. Some of you, uh, you're in the midst of suffering. You're in the midst of trial. Or maybe you have been before. You know, it's Mother's Day, and I think of those of you in the room who have lost a child. I think of people in the room who've lost a loved one, lost a spouse a friend. Think of people in the room who've had an unexpected health diagnosis. I think of people in the room who have come really down on their luck and they've fallen into addiction. Their life has not turned out the way that they planned. Maybe some people in the room have experienced some sort of injustice or unfairness in your vocation. Uh, here's the thing. Pain disrupts life as we know it. We're otherwise living a normal life day to day, keeping busy with things and pain comes in and it completely disrupts and turns over everything in our life. And here's what I want to say. God always sees what we don't see. God always sees what we can't see, what we cannot see. Even if we wanted to glimpse into those things, they're too big for us. God is cosmic, he's huge, totally sovereign. His thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and our ways. There's a story in scripture of a guy named Job. And when affliction comes on his life, I love this, some of the most precious scriptures that bring us counsel in the middle of pain. Do you want to know how God counsels Job in the middle of his pain? He says, hey, you tell me, where were you when I created the earth? In other words, what do you know? It's painful, right? But God's saying, surrender it to me. I am the great I am. No weapon formed against you, my child, will prosper. No plan of mine can be thwarted. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before me. Give it to me. Surrender it to me. Decrease and let me increase. 
There's nothing that God can use to speak to us more profoundly than pain and fear. I could make a joke right now about the light and spirit. <laughs> We've done that before. Too easy. Abraham, at this point in the story, has witnessed God speak and work in unforgettable ways already. He, know God's char- he knows God's character. Here's the thing. Um, this is where trust in God begins. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a vague trust that we have. It's a trust that banks on the heart of God and knowing who he is and knowing who God is, knowing the person of God, knowing his nature, knowing his character, becoming familiar with it is the starting point for our trust in him. Abraham has to walk by faith. He's had to do it before, and this is an invitation from God to do it again. And one of the most neglected truths as we reflect on pain in our lives is that of our refining. Refining. A lot of us can look back on a horrible day, a tragic year, um, a, a really, really painful situation, a conflict. And in retrospect, we acknowledge, yes, it's true. God allowed it, and he refined me. But we often don't see it until it's in our past. Proverbs 17.3 gives us great wisdom. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. In other words, in the same way that gold and silver are refined by fire, the Lord God purifies our hearts by the tests and the trials of our life. And it's scary to think about what it can take for us to see God for who he really is. You hear me? It's kind of scary to think about what it can take in our lives for us to proverbially have God rip the ceiling off of this place. Justin's talked about that before. And just show us who he is and behold him in all of his glory. It's hard for us to do that in everyday life. Pain invites us into seeing God for who he really is. Is. And listen, he refuses to just be useful to us. Do you hear me? God refuses to just be, frankly, prostituted by us for whatever we want him to be for us. God, God is not like a hitchhiker where we drive up to the side of the road and say, hey, hop in the trunk. I'll get you out whenever I need you. No, no, no. The, the idea is that we come before God and we say, I'm getting in the passenger seat. I need you to drive the car. I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing, God. You know because you're God and I'm not. That's the invitation that pain brings to our lives. That's the invitation when we're stressed, when we feel anxious, when we're depressed. That's God speaking very loudly and clearly clearly to us, saying I cannot be contained. I cannot be minimized. And faith in Jesus, whether it's for the first time, or it's ongoing every day as we walk with him. It's hearing God's voice saying, there shall be no other gods before me. And when we open our hands and, sur- and surrender the spirit of God, he gets busy unseating every idol, every false god, everything we're looking to for worth and value and purpose and peace that will ultimately fail us. And he reclaims his seat on the throne of our hearts where he belongs he made us for himself he made us to be friends with him to have fellowship with him to walk with him 
to have relationship that's ongoing and interacting with him. One of the scariest prayers that we can pray, I think I've said it before, God, do whatever it takes in me to accomplish your will through my life. It's a scary prayer. Church, if you're in the middle of something really difficult, my plea is for you to take heart. The best way to, to frame what you're going through is that you are being invited by God to know him better. He's saying, I command all the hosts of heaven. I make every king bow down. I whisper in darkness trembles. I outshine the sun. My majesty rules with justice. My glory consumes like fire. All is mine. My power can raise the dead. My name is undefeated. I am holy, holy, holy. Behold me. There is no one like me and none beside me. And I made you for fellowship with me for all eternity. I see you and child, you've been ignoring me. You've been minimizing me. I'll do what it takes for you to finally see me because I am your hope in life and in death. I think back a couple years ago, um, and I try not to bring this up in the pulpit for my own reasons, but I had a cancer diagnosis and was sick for a while. And I am so thankful that God chose to heal me, sincerely. And I praise Jesus for it every day. But here's the question. Can I say I'm even more thankful for how I know him better and as a result, trust him more because more trial, more suffering is coming. That's life. That's life. That's the fallen and broken world we live in. It's coming. It's around the corner. And even if it, if it doesn't, one day my death will come. And who am I going to hold to? Who am I going to trust who gives eternal life and eternal heaven and eternal bliss, eternal friendship? Those are all that will matter. It's Jesus. My prayer is that for some of us in the room, uh, right now God is doing a work in our life that's inviting us to move from knowing him as this vague higher power or, or the man upstairs to someone so much more. My prayer for our church is that we're always growing and moving from how we, God's not just uh, building a people who are a person, people of faith, but people who are of faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's different. Uh, people moving from knowing God as forgiver of sin to also knowing God as the God of all comfort. People who are moving from knowing God as judge to also knowing God as deliverer. From knowing God as all-powerful to knowing God as my strength, my portion, my refuge when I'm weak. Once we realize how that's happening in our lives, then it comes full circle, and its purpose is realized. Did you know, listen to this, my, my old pastor back in college, he used to call this collateral grace. And what he meant by that was there are things happening in your life right now that God sovereignly oversees. And he actually plans and purposes them to be used so that you can minister to someone else with what you've experienced. Did you know this? An amazing text in scripture is, is found in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that, huge so that, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Think about that. 
God wants to heal me mentally and emotionally and spiritually and even physically to lift me up, to forgive me, to, to, bind, lift, to, to, to bind me up, to, to heal the wounds in me, to set my feet on, on, on new ground, to school me and refine me through fire because he has a plan for me to minister his grace to someone else in my life down the road. It turns out it's not all about me all along. He's prepared good works for me in advance. Wow. Church, here's the application. Don't hide. Don't hide your scars, your trials, your suffering. Don't hide your bruises. Don't hide your darkest moments. Work them out with God in his classroom. Let the Holy Spirit teach you. Then invite other sinners and other sufferers to come alongside you and experience the God of all comfort more closely as you are. Welcome to church. This is awesome. What other place can you go to? Wounded, broken, hurt, desperate for help. And God meets you there with a chorus of people around you who are saying, me too. And Jesus is proving his worth. Every single moment of every day, he's proving his power. He's demonstrating his love. And we get to walk in it together. Imagine with me a church where people are broken, people are wounded, and God is healing. God is comforting. And we're using the comforting and the healing work that God is doing in us to minister to one another. Amazing. God, make us a family like this. We continue in verse 14. Got to take a hard left here, but, but here's what happens. Abraham listens to God. He rose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water and he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. That signals to us that she's back to, she's headed back to the only place she knows, which is Egypt. And in verse 15, it says, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Gut-wrenching scene. Ishmael 16, doesn't matter. He's not seasoned in life. He doesn't know how to last in the desert. And he's dying because of dehydration and mom can't bear to witness it. Look at verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Once again, El Roy, the God who sees, shows up on the scene. One of our pastors favors this name for God. I'll let you guess which one that is. Um, he says, do not be afraid. Elsewhere in scripture, he says, do not be dismayed. Do not be distressed. What did he just say to Abraham earlier in that, that scene? Do not be displeased. Over and over and over and over again in the text of Scripture, God tells us, fear not, and we ought to listen to him. Do you know how many times fear not is in Scripture? 365 times. One per day. 
I can't help but think there's a reason for that. Child of God, today, whatever it is, do you hear his voice? Fear not. And in verse 19, God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well of water. There is an emphasis on sight here. There's an emphasis on God seeing us and wanting us to see him. And some of you, you can't see God right now. Like, you, you haven't even maybe engaged or participated in this sermon because you can't see God right now. You just can't see him. You know he's up there somewhere. You, you just can't feel him right now. You're angry. You're sad. You're doubting. You're losing hope. Here's the wisdom that 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon would give you. First, he says this, The supply of all your necessities is close at hand. The well is near. Believe. Second, he says, The supply is just what you need. It's been provided for you and for you only as this well was. Believe. Third, it takes no work. Don't miss this. All you want has already been supplied. By God, you simply receive it with joy, belief. And this is the good news that we receive. This is what sets Jesus Christ and the Christian faith apart from every other world religion, every other false religion, every other false God. It's that our salvation is received by faith. It's not received by works. We help God in no way. We find God's acceptance in no way. We prove ourselves to God in no way. It's all about his promises to us and his work and his power through us. And it was of great cost to him. He sent his son Jesus to come and live the life that we could never live. A sinless life, a perfect life. And then Jesus died the death that you and I deserve as sinners as the sinless one, so that we could be forgiven. And then he rose again on the third day to conquer the one enemy that we all have in common, death itself. Hallelujah. The good news of Christianity is actually summarized in the book of Galatians. Now listen, uh, this is the last thing we're going to do this morning. I want to take you to a text in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Galatians, references back to this story. He's looking at Hagar, he's looking at Sarah, he's looking at Ishmael and Isaac, and here's what he teaches. Galatians 4, starting in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And here's literally what Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. That's the Jewish people, the actual literal Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is the church, 
that's, that's heaven is free and she is our mother. Makes sense, right? Not at all, okay? Let me summarize it for you, okay? I'm gonna tell you what this means in essence. Everyone is either an Isaac or an Ishmael. You are either enslaved or you are free. Scripture goes to great lengths to present this war that exists over the bondage of a person's will. We are born into sin, and with sin comes slavery. We have free will. We can choose to do and say what we want to choose and do and say. The problem is the want to. God wants to change the heart. He wants to take out a stony heart that doesn't have the want to, and he wants to replace it with a heart that does have the want to. He wants to take out a heart of unbelief, and he wants to replace it with a heart of belief. He wants to make it so that when we tell our stories, Christians, I'm talking to you. This is what it sounds like. I've gotten sober. I'm more loving. I've found peace. I'm more patient. I'm more selfless. I'm more sacrificial. Yes and amen. But here's how we actually should be phrasing this. Hallelujah, God has freed and changed my heart. Hallelujah, I'm no longer a slave to lust. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer bound to anger. I'm no longer bound to addiction. I'm no longer a slave. Jesus has delivered me from the bondage of sin and darkness. I've seen his light. I've received his grace. Some of you, you are in despair, hopelessness, fear, confusion, anger. The source of life is right next to you like that well was to Hagar. And here's what Jesus shouts in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ. If you're not yet a Christian in the room this morning, God wants your sight to change, just like it did for Hagar. In John 3, Jesus answers a guy named Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Can you see God right now? If you can't, faith in Jesus gives you all the sight. It unlocks every part of reality to us. We get to finally see Jesus for who he really is. He loves us. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, this is how I will do it. I will give you a son. And he uses the same language with us. The angel said, I will bring good news of great joy. A son is born to you. God looks at you and I today and he says, this is how I will do it. I will give you my son. What will make you right with me? Not striving, not you pretending, not you performing, not you proving, not you earning, not you gaining, but me giving because I am love. I love you. I'm self-giving. God goes to great lengths to make things personal. Church, this isn't business this morning. This is personal. It's personal. I wonder, is faith in Jesus personal for you? God doesn't have any grandchildren. You don't get to ride on the coattails of someone else in your life. 
It doesn't matter what church you grew up in. People can grow up in the church. They can attend church and be baptized in a church and be confirmed in a church and get married in a church and be a part of a Bible study in a church and celebrate holidays at a church and have a funeral in a church and wake up in hell because they never sincerely, personally, genuinely called upon the name of Jesus in repentance and in faith and bowed their knee and asked for his forgiveness, which he so wants to give. Folks who are born again, God sees you. Do you see him? How is he refining you? How will you not let your trials be wasted by going to him and trusting him? Child of God, he frees you. And he wants to do it more. He wants to loosen shackles. Have you released not your sins to God, not just your sins to God, but also your works? Have you nailed your sins and your works to the cross? Have you nailed not only your shame, but also your pride to the cross? Nothing can be earned. I want to pray a prayer over us as we close. And the band can come up. Um, And here's the prayer. God, we see you. We declare it right now. God, we see you. And if we haven't, give us sight. God, we want to know you. And if we haven't, give us knowledge. God, we want to trust you. And if we haven't, worthy of our trust.